This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. I chose this one as an example of an influence on my music because this, as a child of five, six, taught me that songs can tell stories. And that has been an exceptionally important fact and way of working and of understanding song and how to sing them ever since. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. For this episode, we're happy to welcome our first ever guest host, Will Oldham, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Billy. A previous guest of the show, Oldham's imprint on traditional and outsider musics over the last 30-plus years is indelible. Upon inviting him to guest host, we offered for him to choose anyone he'd like for the episode. And after some sleuthing and overcoming of logistical hurdles, we were able to connect him with his choice, legendary English folk singer June Tabor. Born in 1947, Tabor herself has left an indelible mark on traditional English folk music since her beginnings during the mid-1960s and on through her career to the present day. Untrained and deeply intuitive, her singing is immediately beautiful, deeply evocative, and both of a time and simultaneously timeless. The first song Tabor chose as being formative for her was The Ugly Duckling, sung by Danny Kaye from the 1952 film Hans Christian Andersen. There once was an ugly duckling With feathers all stubby and brown And the other birds in so many words said Get out of town Get out Get out Get out of town And he went with a quack and a waddle And a quack in a flurry of eider down My first contact with any form of music was through the radio All we had at home was a radio We didn't have anything to play uh, records on 
and it was pre-television. We didn't get a television until till I was about 11. So the source of entertainment and the source of music in our house, apart from anything that my parents sang just for the hell of singing, was the radio. And there was a programme on every Saturday morning on the radio called Children's Favourites. And it was a, a request programme that children could write into, and you had to write, and request that a track should be played. And there was a degree of choice by the presenter as well. And this was my real introduction to recorded music. And it was it was quite a it, it was a variety of material on this programme, some of which would have been you would have thought were were written for adults, some that were written for children. Um, just a mixture. And I chose this one as an example of an influence on my music because this, as a child of five, six, taught me that songs can tell stories. And that has been an exceptionally important fact and way of working and of understanding song and how to sing them ever since. I did actually go to see the film Hans Christian Andersen. Um, my mum took me to Warwick Cinema. I was born in Warwick in the Midlands of England and there was a large cinema building and we actually went to see the film. And I don't remember, I remember going to the film, I remember being entranced by it. I loved Danny Kay. We went to see other films of his, uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty and uh, Mary Andrew, like the two I remember going to see. But this is the song that I think really captured my imagination long before I knew anything other than the film story, which I didn't take that much in of, about Hans Christian Andersen, this song, the images of the song, the the way Danny Kay sang it, but the story that it told. And that stayed with me, and perhaps that's when I really started not to look for other things like that, but to understand that this was the kind of song I liked. It doesn't mean that I didn't understand that music has many functions, not all of which is, or song, to tell stories, but the storytelling aspect of this song was something that I never let go. And I keep meaning to sing it myself. Yeah, that would be... Yeah, have you ever directly attempted to make songs geared towards, you know, a, a, a child audience? No. Most of what I sing isn't... Sort of the, the, um, the subject matter isn't um, really child friendly yeah exactly <laughs> uh, well you know sort of incest murder yeah. um, uh, breakdown of relationships love gone wrong um, mining disasters etc you know give them a chance yeah <laughs> they'll find out about all those things later on um, it's just this this song it, it's for children and for adults somehow um, and I, I really I have almost got to the point of of, of singing it and and I may still but it's just that, that the bit when he all through the winter he hid himself away afraid to show his face yeah afraid of what others might say and it's it's just the images there so strong 
all through the winter in his lonely clump of weeds, till a flock of swans spied him there, and very soon agreed, you're a very fine swan indeed. Mm. What? Me? A swan? (laughs) (laughs) And then he looked, and can't you just see it, you know? And he saw, and he said, I am a swan! And then you just the joy, way! (laughs) Oh, that is just... It's so uplifting. It it really is. It's, It's a it's a brilliant story, and it's a brilliant rendition into into the song form. And Danny Danny Kay is is he's a fabulous. Uh, he, he's got a very musical voice, but he but he puts the lyric across so effortlessly, seemingly. Uh, Doesn't he just that that yeah? Even you know, a, as a child, yeah, that story just I felt like he was really teaching me something huge and he was taking the time mm. to, to teach it in a way that I understood. You know, that was what I thought when I was little. Yeah. And how much does, so, you know, and growing up and learning about Danny Kay and we could maybe talk about this a little bit with each of these three singers that, that you'll be talking about, but Danny Kay as a person, you know, I know that growing up, you know, do you, when you discover the people sometimes behind the performances um, you know, I, I like the fa- you know I like at this stage in my life knowing that I was being indoctrinated by this man Danny Kaye. The more I've learned about, say, his uh, politics, and that if he was going to tell a mm. story, that he had a, a degree of conscience and uh, authenticity behind. You know, if, if he's going to tell kids a story, I don't think he would you know do so lightly. I guess. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know anything about Danny Kay as a child. Right, of course. Uh, and it's only really quite recently that it, looking him up in a... I, I'm, I still use books mostly rather than a computer to look people up, but just to discover all that he did in and how much work he did to help other people Yeah, is... It, it's so It's kind of reassuring that the person that you thought was wonderful as a child really was. Because so often it turns out to be the reverse. Yeah, and can you hear though? Like, can you give yourself any credit at all for trusting this voice, or do you think you could have been taken in by somebody without that kind of, uh, I don't know, thorough persona uh, that that Danny Kaye seems to have had? I don't know. Yeah, I, I really, I don't think I can answer that from the point of view of. Um, 70 years yeah. ago. <laughs> um, we just should it, feel it, lucky. It's just I wanted I wanted to like him and I did like him and and uh, hindsight proves that he was likable. I and mean, that's ticks most things so. I love I got that one right. I love his uh inchworm. Um Oh yes. Yeah. And and the and the melody. The way that inchworm. Yeah. Inchworm. Yeah. Measuring a marigold. Yeah. Oh, that's just wonderful. You and your arithmetic. Yeah. Just lovely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then did you ever, is it, was it one time, do you remember, or would they replay the songs? Like, how often would you get the opportunity to revisit a song that you heard on the radio? Because you couldn't just look it up on the computer. or. You know. No, no, it was, that was one of the, 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 the popular th- you know, certain amounts of the programme was requested and certain amount was the choice of the presenter. Um, and that one did crop up quite often. And it really stuck in my mind. Yeah. It, it really yeah. did. 
so that it so much so that when I looked at the words, actually the words written down, I realised I knew them already. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you think, oh, it can't be. Oh, it is, yes. And that's a long time ago. And I probably hadn't heard it for quite a, a long, long time, but it was there. It's funny you're mentioning the uh, the incest because I'm reminded of, uh, I have I have two email accounts and the one that I send all the bill collectors and every and people like that to is the... Is a is the the name in front of it is Bonnie Hind from the uh, oh yes, yeah. uh, which is yeah. you know I decided upon about twenty years ago and I still have to you know spell it out and the N's and the D's are are impossible yeah. over the telephone but and yeah. I often you know feel like I should tell the you know the the phone company or the water company the the story behind the email but I don't think they would appreciate it. I don't think they would somehow. No. Ah. Uh, That's interesting. Not I. The second song Tabor chose as essential to forming her sensibilities was Lowlands Away, a traditional song sung by Ann Briggs. I dreamed a dream the other night. I discovered folk music through, really, um, television programs. Ah. When we when we got a television, um, there was a, a very small sector of it, which was usually a religious program, on the sort of half past five to half past six on a Sunday spot, and both the BBC and the um, commercial channel had a program then which involved folk music and I didn't really realise it was folk music but I realised that I quite liked the music that I was hearing on this particular program and that led me to discover other sources just quite by accident there was on the uh, evening news programme there were a, a Scots duo who sang sometimes traditional songs. And again, I felt a degree of interest in these songs that I hadn't felt in other forms of music, except as a, en passant. And one thing led to another, and I was I enjoyed singing, but I sang all sorts of things without feeling any particular degree of relation to them. I, at one point I wanted to be Françoise Hardy and uh, so I learnt French. I learnt her Tous les garçons et les filles and I sang, I was got a singing role in the school play and because people knew I sang. I have no musical education whatsoever. I sang because I loved to sing and I sang all kinds of things, mostly things I'd heard on the radio. But, but when I heard some traditional music, that was when I began to think, ah, oh, I'd like to find out more about that. And a friend 
took me to a folk club which had opened um, like about two weeks before in the, a town about two miles away from where I lived. And that, that was when I really started to get hooked. And she said, she knew how these things worked because I didn't. And as soon as we got there, she went up to the organiser and said, um, my friend sings, will you, can, will you put her on for a spot? And I'm going, huh. Francis, I don't know any folk songs. Yes, you do, you must know something. Yeah. So all I knew by the, the words, all the words of, were two things that I'd heard on the religious programmes, which was Michael Bo- Row the Boat Ashore and Kumbaya. Uh-huh. So I sang those, and that was the, my first foray into singing. Sing, and in and singing unaccompanied. And, and sing, oh uh, yeah. Among yeah. many others singing unaccompanied that, that evening? No. Yeah. Oh no, most mostly, unless it was a, a, a sort of a lead chorus song, uh-huh. most people um, accompanied themselves usually on a on a guitar, yeah. and there was a resident band which was two guitars and a banjo, um, and I liked the music they were playing. I became friends with them. I started going to the folk club, and I wanted to find out more, so I went to visit my sister who lived in London and told her all about my newfound hobby. I was about 16. And she said, oh, OK, right. So she, we, we looked in the Melody Maker, which was a sort of um, music journal, weekly thing, which had uh, listings of gigs, and found a folk club that wasn't that far from where she lived in London. And she took me to that. And then she said, well, there's a record shop that specialises in... Um, Mostly jazz, but folk as well. Let's go there, and I'll I'll buy you um I'll buy you a record as a present because she'd given me a a funny little dance set record player for Christmas a year or so before that. So off we went to Dobles on Charing Cross Road. We went to the folk section, and I looked through the offerings, and I found this EP, a reproduction of which is in front of me now, "The Hazards of Love" mm. by a young woman called Anne mm-hmm. Briggs. And I looked at it. I thought, well, that looks that looks quite interesting. And it seems, it seems she, um, yeah, okay. She's not much older than I didn't know at the time. She was only three years older than <laughs> me. And um, okay, let, let's have that. So I took it home, and I was mesmerised because here was somebody singing without any accompaniment, but using the voice somehow to make a form of accompaniment through decoration, through vocal decoration, so that it was complete in itself. I've got to do that. So I played the... It was a 45 EP. I played it at 33 Uh. on the the record player so I could sort of pick out the individual notes and I learnt them by heart and then I shut myself in the bathroom, which had the best acoustics in the house, and sang and sang and sang until I could do it myself. I drove my mother mad. Um, yeah. Anyway, I persevered. And that was how I found uh, the first way of singing in a way that I could express myself without any interference from anybody else, which is really how I, I suppose at that point I viewed um, accompaniment. I could do this. I couldn't play an instrument. I'm far too lazy uh-huh. to learn practice. But I discovered that I'd got an instrument already, and that was a voice. And that was the very beginning of me actually finding a way of making my voice do things that I liked 
and exploring what it could do and then listening to other singers and copying what they did. And I mean, people ask me sometimes, well, can you give me a singing lesson? And so I say, okay, you ready? And they go, oh, p- pardon? Listen. Imitate. Ah. Imitate over and over again until you've got it right and then gradually leave most of it out. That's it. And they look at you, that's it. Yeah, that's that's singing. Yeah. yeah. Because that's what I did. <laughs> and that's what I still do on occasions if it's something unusual or a different way of singing. And I just listen and copy and then work out how to integrate it into the way I sing and then mostly not do it so that when you do do it, it's very effective. To begin with, you do it far too often and end up where you've lost the tune and the decoration and all that kind of thing. But it was hearing Anne using her voice like that that really set me on the path to finding my own voice. And I cannot thank her enough for it. And and I'm going to assume the answer is yes, but I don't know because I've never heard of an instance of the two of you being together. But did you subsequently develop any sort of uh, professional or personal relationship with Anne Briggs? I, I only met her, I think I met her twice. Um, wow. Once she came to the... Um, I went to Oxford University and the, um, the there was a folk song society there which I immediately joined and went to meetings every every Monday during term time and a couple of times each term there would be a guest singer and Anne did come as a guest singer I think when I was in my second year and so that was the first time I'd actually met her and then I met her again oh about 25 years later wow. on a, a, a BBC recording because she she gave up singing and um, moved, I think that's for, for quite some time and um, went to live in the north of Scotland so I, I didn't wouldn't have encountered her and then was persuaded to, um, to sing again, uh, which she did. Thank goodness for that. Um, so I, I know friends of friends, she was very, always very friendly with the Watersons and I think I did encounter her once with the Watersons somewhere in Scotland. But it, there was never any kind of um, close or continuous relationship except through her recorded voice. Yeah, I think my first, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that my first encounter with your voice was hearing a recording of Where Are You Tonight, the Andy Stewart song. And I can't, and a friend oh, yeah. had taped it, had made a cassette for me. This was probably 19. 88 or 89 that he did and and I feel like the note that he yeah. made on it was that but I I've lost his he 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 made all these tapes for me and copious notes and and around that time would there also have been could he have tapes a, a live performance of that off the radio as well uh you know in addition around that time would there be that did you would you have performed that song on BBC um I we might yeah. have I honestly can't remember it was now that's the Andy Stewart song that was entered in a songwriting competition and that's how I yeah. found it oh wow yeah. so how did you find it through the songwriting was, competition the, well it was there was a songwriting competition that was held at Kendall Folk Festival and I was 
asked to be a judge. Um, that would be 87. And there were... So I was sent a, um, a sort of about 20 songs to listen to and to pick out the ones I thought should be in the final. And then the writers actually performed the the songs... Um, on stage at the festival and then the panel of judges you know went into a back room and drank a lot of coffee and argued and etc and on that first year two of the songs in the final six I ended up recording ah. and the one that and, and one of them I, I think should have won it didn't um, and one of them was the King oh, well. of Rome yeah. about the, the, the yeah. pigeon race and the uh, other was Dave Goulder's Seven Summers. So two right. out of the six. So the next year, I wasn't a judge, but I got in touch with the people running the competition and said, this has been so valuable for me. Would you possibly send me a tape of the sort of, you know, final, um, sort of, you know, the, the, the last list before the, the six decided? And there was Andy Stewart's um, Where Are You Tonight? <laughs> Do such contests exist still? No, no, it, I think it only ran two or three years and then the sponsors uh, decided, you know, that was they, they'd done their bit and, uh, and so it didn't happen again. But songs do have a habit of finding me and I'm very, very lucky. Um, the band played Walsing Matilda. Um, he Fades Away just came to me as though they were meant to. Yeah. <laughs> he Fades Away, yeah. a friend... Yeah. Um, gave me a tape to listen to in a, in a long car journey in America and said, look, this will keep you amused. And that song came on and we, Mark and I, just we just started to cry. We had to pull over on the freeway and sit on the hard shoulder till it was over because it was so amazing. Wow. And later, the um, the writer, I met him, and he said, "You got my, you got my the tape I sent you then." And I said, "Tape?" He said, "Yeah, I sent a, a a copy of the album to your record company." And I said, "Well, it didn't find me, but the song did." Huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yes. sometimes one is one is blessed, but that Andy Stewart song was definitely was one of those that that found me. And and I. Um. I want to ask you partly just because of the times that we live in and, and so separate from, although it's inextricable from just the tradition of, you know, the, the singer is telling the story as it's put forth in the lyric and you can decide, you know, in that song, um, I want to talk, you know, just about gender for a second and the, and the sense of, of, you know, occupying, you know, the space that, is not uh our um you know our legal official gender because i've in in you know trying casually and professionally to sing that andy stewart song it's it's where it's it's bizarrely disappointing to get to the line about you know in the morning at another man's side because there's a power to just your voice saying that line no you know I don't ascribe any meaning to it except that there's a power to it. And and the power maybe just be that you're a singer who can own this song and 
um, make it universal by obviously not being or potentially not being the character who's singing the song, but it doesn't matter because it's about a human... It's a bit of both, but really, it's, it's the song. That's the main thing, and everything else is ancillary. It, it's part of the pyramid underneath the song, but the song is the main reason for being there and for singing it and for sharing it and yeah. sharing how the song made me feel. And who I am is obviously part of how I respond to a song, but not, not it's, that's not the be-all and end-all of it by, yeah. by any means. Yeah. So I think it, I have to say the song comes first and last, and it's in the middle as well. Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century non-profit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS. A collection put together by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from the collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org. Or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. Established in 1996, Royal Books is a seller of rare books and paper specializing in literature, cinema, music, and the arts. From Cassavetes to Ida Lupino, from New Wave to Warhol, you will find an ever-expanding selection of first editions, original film scripts, vintage photographs, posters, and 20th century Americana. Visit us online at royalbooks.com or visit our store on any weekday between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. The final piece of music Tabor chose as being crucial to her was A Foggy Day in London Town, sung by Frank Sinatra. A foggy day in London town Had me low, had me down I view the morning with alarm The British Museum had lost its charm So your, you know, some of your particular ways of singing um what i was kind of thrilled with the sinatra choice um because in you know listening over the years again and again to the the delightfully mysterious uh wild gamekeepers lie sleeping um and wondering where some of that style comes from and because i i don't 
I, I've never encountered a singer who sings quite like that. And, and, you know, in part, including, you know, yourself, like there's, it's, it, it has certain things that are, are unique about it, but some of those, like the bends that you do. Um, and then when I was listening to the Sinatra song and hearing some of his bends, um, that are all his own and, you know, comparing like, um, Fred Astaire singing the same song, um, and the the bends aren't there, or even Sinatra later singing the same song. And, and I, I guess I should say we're talking about a foggy day in in London town. And but I was I was delighted because I was like, oh, maybe this is the missing link. I'm not going to say that it, it is, but <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you. When we come back to the radio again and to a different radio request program, it was. Um, family favourites it became to begin with it was um, Forces favourites it was um, sort of broadcast for um, requests for servicemen abroad whether you know still in Germany or in various other parts of Europe other parts of the world um, and their families writing in to have music played for them and then it became family favourites and Sinatra featured quite heavily on this programme my mother did not like Frank Sinatra. Oh no, she'd go, not him again. She liked Al Martino. Do not, I cannot understand this now. But when you're a child, you um, you adopt your parents' prejudices, alas. And so I would say, oh, oh, oh no, not him. And he ran out of the room. But <laughs> obviously it stuck. What I had heard, I didn't understand that I loved it at the time. But my goodness me, I discovered in later life that I really did. And if anything you can learn from Sinatra, it is his timing, but also it's the way he sings. Jules Stein said of Sinatra, Frank sings the words, everybody else just sings the notes. Yeah. And that, I hope, is something that I have embraced wholeheartedly in the way I sing just as he did and the more I listen to Sinatra the more I still the more I hear in what he's doing his timing is absolutely impeccable just that the slight pause before you sing a note the slight pause just or, or they're just singing it slightly fast but it's all to make sense of the words yeah to make them really tell and when you get in foggy day I, I when I was trying to decide what the three songs should be. I knew one should be Sinatra. Right. So I got my Frank Sinatra songbook out and I thought, no, which which one should it be? And I'm looking through the index and I discovered that by osmosis I had absorbed most of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, and then I, so I sing myself a bit of that. But when we came, when I came to A Foggy Day in London Town and it's such that line, the British Museum had lost its charm. Now, mm-hmm. what... How's that for a line in a song? And so I listened to it again, having not listened to it for a long time, and just you get to that last line. And in fog and in foggy London town, the sun was shining, shining, shining. And you could hear the warmth and love in his voice. It's just, there is nobody like Sinatra. No. And and so you know to, to ah, oh yes in Tory, and I should say um, yes gamekeepers what is what is the connection this is a quiz question isn't it yeah there we between, go 
well I think something of of the way he just used his voice thought about the words and made the words tell stuck with me and the other influence is the way that gypsies sing uh-huh. because if you listen to field recordings of gypsy singers you will find that they never sing a verse the same twice. Most traditional singers didn't, actually, which is why you only ever find the first verse written down by, actually, uh, the notation written down by a collector. And think, oh, I can't write down the whole things. You know, 14 verses and everyone sung differently. But this um, really playing with the tune is um, quite noticeable in the singing of some gypsies including um jasper smith from whom that song came but uh-huh. i never actually heard jasper sing it until after i'd recorded it i found it in a book and this is where books the recording the actual note um not the notation of the tune necessarily because i can't right. read music um i have to get somebody else to do it for me but it's the, the words captured my imagination and i'd heard recordings of gypsies singing other songs doing this bending and and just stopping and starting and i just thought i'm I'm just going to sing this the way i hear it you can you can hear that you can see the hare running and the dog chasing and then and they go to the pub and both get drunk and i loved the words and i just sang it the way i felt it should be sung and then poor nick jones had to put the accompaniment on afterwards (laughs) And did so? Did you bring the melody to that then? Um, well, it was. It's a version of the melody that was in the in the book. It's in okay. the, uh, the Hammond Gardner collection, as far as I remember. Um, uh-huh. Well, it it was a, a song popular among country singers. Um, not surprisingly, poaching right. was one of the ways that people kept their families fed. Right. And so I just sort of learnt the tune straight and then I started to play with it just because I I wanted to yeah and then a lot uh, much time passed and we were doing um, a session on the, the Jules Holland uh-huh. show which is um, live well some of it was live it was all recorded live and then some was broadcast live on television and the rest um, later on as a full session and this session we were doing included um, uh, Plant and Page uh, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page unplugged with their full ensemble there was a whole folk orchestra there was a string quartet and there were four Egyptian musicians Ah. and the producer who knew my work from beginning to end said I really want you to sing When Gamekeepers Lie Sleeping Ah. I said, are you sure? Said, yeah, oh, yes, yes, we've got to have it on the programme. So I did. I was terrified. <laughs> Imagine everybody who else was on the programme. Here am I having to sing this. But anyway, I did. And afterwards, the Egyptians came up to me and said, you sang in quarter tones. We didn't think English people could do oh, that. Oh, yes. <laughs> so yes. there you are. It's um, somehow something in me... Uh, listened absorbed the way other people sang and it and it really came out as early as that in in that song 
I think I've seen. I think that's on. I think we can see that. I think I've seen that performance. Um, yeah. Of you, of you doing that. And do you ever do a song the same twice? Um, not, or not really. Well, most sometimes. Once you start working with accompaniment, you you have to. But yeah. the people that I am lucky enough to work with, um, I've been working with them for a very long time, and. They just know to be a millisecond behind, so that if I do something different, they can adjust to it. So right. I'm not as as much in a straitjacket as I feared I would be when I first started singing with accompaniment. May I ask what you think of Robert Plant as a singer? I think he's a great singer, actually. Or he certainly was. Um, I haven't heard him recently. Yeah. Not not his in his last. Um, incarnation. I was I was not a Zeppelin fan, so yeah. I, you know, but just hearing him, um, just uh, things that he's done in the kind of middle period. He, yes, he can do it all right. Yeah, there, there's a around probably around the time of that uh, Jules Holland appearance. I think they may have been. They made a record with an old friend of mine who's a recording engineer out of Chicago named Steve Albini, and, and that that record made me reassess Plant as a singer, and he's, he's just mm. awesome on on mm. that recording. And if you ever find yourself with a few days of free time in Chicago, Illinois, I would recommend you go oh. record, <laughs> record with Steve because he's a magnificent capture of, of musical right. signals for sure. Yeah. Um and and then as far as people go, uh you know S- Sinatra he's endless fodder for a singer's uh, thinking to wander to. Um you know hearing even you know I think as uh as a kid it, a box set came out and I got it for Christmas and it was the voice and it was his early just honey voice um yeah. you know crooning. And it yeah. was it, it shocked me because at the time I only knew um, the capital Sinatra, and at the same yeah. time it kind of blew me away because it was just so remarkably pr- pristine and precise and gorgeous. Mm. And then to see like that that was his stepping stone to becoming the expressive singer that he became, and then going on yeah. to almost I don't know sacrifice his voice. But I, you know, to mm. my understanding, not his live charisma, but it was, you know, not the instrument in the last fifteen or even twenty years of his career that it it had been before. And I don't know no, if that's al- alcohol and tobacco and I, or yeah, yeah, just s- sad in the end. The timing was still there, but it wasn't the same voice. And then, as no. a person, you know, as a as a challenging persona. Um, yes. You know, sometimes I, you know, sometimes I think, should I be feeling at all guilty when I'm, you know, losing myself uh, with glee in these Sinatra performances? And sometimes mm. I do feel a tad bit guilty, but I'm certainly got a few things to answer for to St. Peter, um, so I'm not going <laughs> to judge anybody else. But the age of miracles, they hadn't passed. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore 
For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.